Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. So call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The single best thing, single best thing that happened to stocks in November was the hideous bruising that we got in the month of October. As I surveyed the landscape, on a day where the Dow nudged 11 points higher, S&P lost 0.25%. NASDAQ actually declined 0.53%. After yesterday's 500-point Dow rally, I see a market that suddenly is beginning to, I don't know, make some sense. If you're a bull, you need a day like today. It consolidates and cements yesterday's move. Sure, stocks were mixed, and we had some real doozy quarters tonight from Yelp and Activision Blizzard. Ugh. But when... They're two bad ones. But when you rally as hard as we did Wednesday, you have to see some orderly profit taking and some reasonable readjustment because not everything should go higher like it did yesterday. It can't and shouldn't be that easy. After all, broad index fund buying in the wake of the election caused yesterday's rally. When an S&P 500 fund puts money to work, it doesn't distinguish between stocks that should go higher and stocks that shouldn't. That's what happens on the second day. That was today's action. Lots of people are asking me, is that it? Is it over? Is the correction done? Are we now in the woods? That's not a simple question. So first I want to put it in historical, not hysterical, but historical context. This market has been rallying pretty steadily ever since Donald J. Trump was elected president. He created a pro-business regime, started to roll back regulation all over the place, and procured a gigantic tax cut for corporations and many individuals. Whatever you may think of the guy, I mean, come on, the stock market loved him. But that all changed when the president switched priorities earlier this year. Rather than being solely focused on the economy, he decided to crack down on our trading partners, chiefly China, for their, yes, blatantly unfair practices. I'd argue that this had to be done. China, in particular, was targeting whole American industries for destruction by heavily subsidizing their own competing manufacturers. However, the stock market loves free trade, and it's terrified of protectionism. The result? A frightening plunge earlier this year that rolled back a big chunk of the previous rally. Now, we eventually worked our way back up to our highs, but then in October, October, wow, October rolled around and the president turned extra bellicose against the Chinese. And the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, started talking about the need to overshoot with his rate hikes, planning on one more in December and three additional ones next year. They know nothing! They know nothing! They know nothing! Ugh. These two events created a level of fear and loathing that obliterated the whole market and made us recognize that the world's a lot more complicated than many investors thought. As always, the speed with which he declined no doubt drove another wave of investors out of stocks and onto the sidelines. It drives me crazy because I don't want people to leave. No, no, no. 
But it's hard to take that kind of quick pain. The fear continued all through earnings season, creating a kind of negative feedback loop. Companies would report strong quarters, but because of the tariffs and higher interest rates, almost every single big capitalization report contained a huge litany of negatives, higher input costs, supply chain problems, possible weakening demand, concerns that 2019 may not be such a hot year, and of course, the trade war with China. So we got more estimate cuts, right? And we got more downgrades. Sell, sell, sell. And more negative research than, frankly, I've seen at any time Anytime since President Trump was elected president. The glass three-quarters full that we had for so long has become a glass half empty. But you know what? You know what? That brutal October, wait, that bruising, it has set us up for a possibly very good November. Let me pick three big household names, Amazon, Alphabet, and Apple, and give you their narratives to show you why. First, when Amazon reported they blew away the earnings, they had really good revenues. But management gave a forecast that was very much in keeping with the overall new gloom. I went home that night. I bummed. I was bummed, right? I mean, I figured, though, before you get too negative, it'll be just like always. You'll come in the next morning. I know all the analysts will say terrific things about Amazon. They'll apologize for it. And they'll bump up their price targets. They'll cheerlead for Bezos. Probably talk about the three headquarters. It'll be a love fest like always. Nope. In what I regard as a totally shocking development, we got a slew of price target cuts, actual downgrades of Amazon. The gloom infected the whole analyst community. Actually, it was more like a Saturnine epidemic had swept through the analyst village. And the next thing you know, a $2,000 stock traded at $1,486. Listen, I've been recommending Amazon for maybe about 1,500 points. Not bad. But I was trashed on Twitter uh, because I happened to say that I liked it when it was at 1,700. The hate was palpable. It's incredible, stunning, stunning turn of events. Alphabet, the old Google, had decent top and bottom line numbers, decent commentary. Not blowout, but with $106 billion in cash, who cares, right? I figured, okay, no boosted price targets, but we'll still get the usual positive kernels, the litany about how the weakness created buying opportunity. Oh, man, was I wrong. Price targets been spindled, mutilated, downgrades all over the place. The community quarantined this stock, and they sentenced Alphabet to die. Alpha became true roadkill, but they saved the worst for last. Apple gave you an excellent number, okay? And a good forecast. However, management decided that they'd stop breaking out individual phone sales because these numbers were no longer representative of the company's fortunes, meaning they don't give you the true picture of how Apple's doing. Although I did not care one bit for the way they announced it, I totally agree with the presumption. Apple's now a consumer products company with the most popular device in the world. And the huge service revenue stream gets more like a super tech-charged Gillette razor than some mindless piece of commodity hardware. The service streams, the blades. But this time, the analysts outdid each other, trying to be more and more negative about the greatest sell, company sell, on sell, earth. Sell, 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 sell. Oh, man, they couldn't get out of there telling you, sell, 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 sell. One after another mused about exactly how badly Apple might really be doing. And how next year will be an obvious shortfall. Well, the company wouldn't have stopped giving out the kind of phone guidance. We got price targets galore. We got downgrades for the first time since the stock was in the 90s. We got commentary that, yes, Apple's best days are behind it. I'm picking on those three companies because they're emblematic of the intense negativity that so many quarters were met with. And what did the negativity accomplish besides getting you out at the, at the bottom? Well, it reset expectations. If you're going up and up for two years, the expectations have finally come down. In other words, the newfound pessimism has finally lowered the bar enough that the risk has been seriously diminished by the widespread feeling of despair. 
How ugly has it gotten? Yesterday's massive rebound meant almost nothing to most people. It was widely regarded as a simple knee-jerk relief rally. Now that the election's behind us, something's going to be quickly repealed. Hey, by the way, same with that piece of news today that you honor about the Fed, Fed statement on uh, rates. It was a true nothing burger made with a little lettuce, tomato, some ketchup. No surprises. However, there are forces at work that could very well be undermining the gloom. Energy prices, which had soared to the point where we had visions of sugar plums and $100 oil in our heads by the time we rolled out this year's version of the Nutcracker. Well, guess what? The price of crude has plunged to 60 bucks, And it could go much lower, I think. I think, I think it, it could roll back even the Fed's ridiculous fears about, oh, about the specter of inflation everywhere. Meanwhile, mortgage rates have gotten so high that home prices are actually coming down. The stock of D.R. Horton, giant home builder, plunged about 9% today after management admitted that things were less than sanguine in the housing market. Yes, the tariffs lurk, but we won't know anything until most likely until the end of the G20 meeting at the uh, you know, right around when December rolls around. Okay, so now you know the context. Let's put it all together. We're going into the holiday season with very few scheduled catalysts for the next few, four weeks. We have expectations that are now lowered to the point any time in the last two years for most stocks. Anything good could cause them to fly. We have inflation getting cooler by the day because of the newfound vicious bear market in oil. We have the election behind us and the latest Fed meeting behind us, too. And for the next few weeks, we have no news. You know what no news is? Good news. The bottom line, bizarrely enough, the newfound sense of fear and negativity created by the October meltdown is the best thing that could have happened to this market because it gives stocks the breathing room that they need to roar higher again. I think it's entirely possible that with a few more placid days like this one, we could get sideline money to come back in as the calendar and stock cupboard are bare. And maybe it's time to get long. Roseanne in Connecticut. Roseanne! Yes, Jim. Nice to hear you. Same. I'm just calling because we respect you, admire you so much. But this is just your opinion. I understand. But I was wondering what your take is on the upcoming merger with Dell Technologies. You think I should hold or? Yes, or I'm cash? not an arbitrageur, but I listen to David Faber enough in the news. He doesn't tell you whether to buy or sell. That's not his job. But the news flow seems to be positive, so I would hold on to it. Let's go to Scott in Minnesota. Scott, Professor Kramer. Yo, yo. Thank you, for, thank you for the education that you give each of us. That's what we want. My, all right. My wife and I established a small spec position in Redfin a year ago. Since then, it has fallen from 25 to less than $15 to sh- per share. With today's earning report, is now the time to prune the garden and sell, hold, or is there a better stock in this down sector to change into? Candidly, I do not like Redfin. Uh... I you know, came public and it's missed a bunch of quarters and they had a really miss. I've not heard this conference call yet, but they've had some miserable conference calls. Zillow is also being incredibly disappointing. Anything housing and anything autos needs to be cleared of unless it's part of an electric car. Those are the two areas of the economy that Jay Powell should pay heed so he doesn't do the wrong thing. All right, the best thing to happen to stocks this month was the beating that they took last month. With more calm days like today, I expect to see buyers coming back if we stay placid. Man, money tonight. Can the mastermind behind one of the, the street's greatest breakups concoct another winner in Dow DuPont? I'm sitting down with the legendary Ed Breen to find out what's ahead for the company. Then I'm talking with Take Two Interactive, the video game maker behind Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption 2. Could today's drop after earnings and, of course, the uh, not so great numbers from Activision Blizzard be your chance to buy? I'm wagering yes, but why don't you hear the story? And is it time to set sail on Norwegian cruise lines after a great quarter? I'm going to sit down with the CEO after its report to see if it should be part of your portfolio's port of call. 
stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. Three years ago, we learned that Dow Chemical and DuPont were merging to create a titanic company that could then break itself up into three smaller, more specialized, more rational businesses, an agricultural play, a material science play, and especially products play. I've been a huge fan of this story, both because this is exactly the kind of move that tends to unlock a ton of value, and also because Ed Breen, the CEO of the combined company, has an incredible track record when it comes to breaking up enterprises. He made you a fortune when he divvied up Tyco. Now, this three-way split is coming early next year, but it's been rough to own Dow DuPont. Upon a plate, so I know all too well since we own it big for my, for my travel trust. You can follow that by joining the ActionWordsPlus.com club. The stock's down more than 16% for the year, but ever since the market-wide bottom last month, this thing has been soaring up almost 16% from the October lows, including a terrific run after the company reported a great quarter last week. For the past couple of days, the company's been holding a series of investor invest, events to really kind of lay out the story. So let's check in with Ed Breen. He's the visionary CEO of Dow DuPont. Get a better sense of what this breakup means for all three divisions and their shareholders. You, Mr. Breen, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Good to see okay, you. this is really important, Ed. There are people who own this stock, and they're going to say to me, well, what are the three? They're not going to say, which ones do I sell? What are the three? So I need you to give the shorthand that is not to hedge funds and not to analysts about what people are going to be getting soon from what you've done. Well, you're, you're getting uh, three world-leading uh, companies in the respective industry. It's pretty incredible because what happened is we moved around about 20 different businesses from Dow and DuPont and reorganized it. So you're getting a, one of the world-leading ag companies, probably the only publicly traded big ag company I might mention. Uh, you're getting a, a specialty company that benchmarks against any of the best specialty companies in the world in New DuPont, and you're getting a great material science company um, in Dow. And all three are truly industry leaders that are coming out of this. Okay, so if you think a great secular growth theme is feeding the world, you're giving us the best agricultural company. That's correct. That it's, it's one of the most diverse. There's only two companies that really play across the whole spectrum. And we bo have both the seed portfolio and the crop protection portfolio. So the breadth of this uh, the, the products in the ag business are really spectacular. We have the biggest product launches coming in the next five years that we've ever had, 21 new products coming out. So it, it's a great business. We know Mr. Fitterling. He's going to be running a company that's generating huge cash flow, maybe a good dividend if people want that. Well, first of all, I'm so pleased that Jim's going to be the CEO. He's an awesome operator and really a strategic guy. And they did announce, and we announced uh, yesterday with the Dow business, they're going to pay out a 45% net income ratio. And on top of that, we announced that they're going to pay out at least 20% of their net income in share buybacks. Right. So it is a true cash machine, and it should be 
uh, the way you should run that business. And so it's going to be a big payback. Right, you're a fast grower in the, in the crop protection and ag. We've got a company that could be a good dividend play. And now let's talk about DuPont, because this looks a lot more like it than Tyco than any of them. And you're, you're executive chairman. This Correct. is going to be a company, transportation, advanced polymers, electronics and imaging, safety and construction, industrial biosciences, new, nutrition and health. That sounds like, to me, five more companies. Could it happen? You've well, done it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what we've what we've done with the, the board, our new board, um, which by the way, we recruited some great oh, people yeah. to huh. it um, in the last few months. Um, well, we've already talked to them. Uh, you know, we want to run the company the way it is. I think it's going to trade very well. It benchmarks against the best multi-industry companies in the world. I've, I've benchmarked it for the investors today against the three best multi-industry companies, and our benchmarks are right Can where they share are. you share which ones? That you're well, doing? we benchmark 3M, Honeywell, and ITW. Um, they are and, the best. And our EBITDA margins are right at the top of the heap at 28% EBITDA margin. So I think that says a lot about the health of the business. Having said that, We'll always look at all our options. And if we see a better path to create shareholder value, we certainly would make some moves with the portfolio. I was surprised the stock came down so much. I know you bought a huge amount of stock. What do you think is the most underappreciated about Dow DuPont by investors? Well, I think people are just starting to study it. I think it was a confusing Point. story, Good you point. know, because we moved so many things around. It took long to accomplish it because of the antitrust approvals. And by the way, Jim, very interesting. When I split Tyco up um, into the five companies, it didn't really start overperforming till we got very, you know, much closer to the spins. People were doing their study, and you want maybe one or two of the stocks, not three, so you're not buying in early. And then if you really looked at it, and you certainly know the story, wow. the five years after you did the deals and you looked at the appreciation from when we started through, the stock was up 1,000% with dividends. So. And that's why I'm telling and, people it's okay to wait. You, so you're in a little bit of a dead period right. always, and then, you know, things start really percolating. But it's not so dead because you're buying back $3 billion worth of stock. I didn't think you'd do any buyback until you got the split. Well, we're not only doing that, we're doing it in a five-month period. And then as we were talking today to the investors, we're going to be shareholder friendly with the dividend of all three companies, but we're all most likely going to institute a share buyback as soon as we do the splits of the companies for each of the three. People uh, during a period when it went from the 60s to the 50s were saying, look out, China's going to be bad for them, China is going to be bad. None of that's really played out, right? No, it's incredible. We reported, oh, look, our, our sales went up 10% in the quarter we reported last week. Our EPS was up 35%. And when you look at the sub-segments people were concerned about, they said China. Our China sales were up 18%. They said industrial. It was up 7%. And the big one, they kept saying, well, it was auto. Our right. auto sales grew 10%. And so. you should tell people because it's not, you are not carburetors. You are Correct. the new parts of, of the visionary yeah. parts of autos. Well, and most of the DuPont portfolio is in the secular growth areas. That's where we put our science and research. So, for instance, in the auto industry, we're the ones electrifying the cars, which is the, the, the wave. We're also the company lightweighting vehicles, which is a huge trend that's going to continue. So that's how you can grow 10 percent at a time when auto bills actually last quarter were probably about zero. Uh, so you got to be in the right secular areas. And that's where we are really diverting our R&D and innovation machine. So we're in the high, fast growth areas over the next five years. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the R&D because that was be next for me, which is that a lot of people put these two together and bring them slash, 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 slash. Your R&D is actually up. Yeah, so, so the beauty of redoing the portfolio, and I'll, I'll use uh, DuPont as the example, we're going to spend almost a billion dollars on R&D per year. 
So it's, it's at a rate that's very healthy compared to the pe- competitive peer set. But what happened is you're bringing R&D in from the Dow businesses that came in and the DuPont, and you're bringing that R&D into the same end market opportunities, like in nutrition and health. We both had nutrition and health companies. Now you're bringing double the R&D to bear on that industry. Well, one of the areas, and just because there's so many great things, we can talk about Tyvek, talk about Kevlar, but probiotics. Okay, so we had uh, our uh, Ben on from Clorox. It, it, you can't stock the stuff. And you, you make the best probiotics. So we're about a third of the world's probiotic market. And, you know, it's still kind of in its early stages. It's even every, though it's I think big, people could take one a day. The whole world might have to take one. Well, if that happens, we have a heck of a company. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that business last quarter and all year has grown 25%. And we're just really now starting to penetrate the Asia market, the China market. But the, the percentage buy over there is still relatively small compared to North America. So I agree there's going to be, be a big uplift in this one. One last thing, and I know you're a very humble man, so it's going to be difficult. He's from about a mile from where I grew up. Uh, everyone always says Ed Breen's going to leave. Ed Breen's going to leave. He's got to sell him. Ed Breen's going to leave. You're not. You're still going to be involved with two of these companies. Yeah, I'm going to be on the board of Corteva, and I've committed, and I'm, by the way, I'm very excited and energized to be committed to be executive chair of DuPont. And it, it, just to clarify, it's a full-time position. Right. Well, it's important because uh, there are people who say, well, you know, he's gotten old, and we're, we're the exact same age. I don't feel old. You don't seem to look or, or act old, so I think we're going to be pretty terrific. Uh, you're going to be living where? In Philly? Where are you going to stay? Yeah, Center City, Philly, because it's a 40-minute commute down to yeah. uh, Wilmington. And I, I can't leave Philly. I know you love Philly in the evening, so I'm staying right there. All right, terrific. That's what I want to hear. Okay, that's Ed Breen, CEO of Dow DuPont, DWDP. You guys are looking for stocks that have, that have a lot of room before you even get to where their old highs were with good yield and good management? This is it. Dow DuPont. Man Money's back here to the break. Coming up, the countdown is over. Take-Two Interactive is launching their biggest game in years. What impact will the follow-up to Red Dead Redemption have on the stock? Kramer settles up with the CEO. It was years in the making. And now, the wild sequel to Take-Two's Western World is here. Should home gamers be as excited as gamers for the big release? All right, sometimes the market can be downright mystifying. Just look at Kramer Fave Take-Two Interactive, arguably the best maker of video games on Earth. Last night, Take-Two reported a seemingly spectacular quarter. Say the stock got slammed, was down more than 5%. company had just launched the, uh, the really incredibly anticipated Red Dead Redemption 2. And we learned that in less than a week, it already sold 17 million copies worldwide. Biggest opening weekend of any entertainment franchise, 725 million. That's insane. Take two earned a buck five per share. And also looking for only 93 cents. Sales came in higher than expected, up 11% year over year. Bookings were much higher than expected thanks to the strength of one of their popular sports franchises, NBA 2K19, another critically acclaimed uh, production. And their gross margin exploded, I mean, up 1,090 basis points. So why the heck did the stock go lower, not higher? Part of that's to do with expectations. Everybody knew Red Dead 2 would be huge. Everybody figured the quarter would be great. That's why the stock rallied like crazy last week. But I think most of this comes down to the fact that management is conservative. They gave conservative full-year guidance, and that's not what Wall Street wanted to see. Now, I'm betting this is a classic under-promise, over-deliver situation. It's giving you a nice buying opportunity. Biggest this company. Why? Because this company is not promotional and shies from hype more than any I know. Self-effacement is their watchword. Don't take it from me. Let's hear from Strauss Zelnick. He's the bankable chairman and CEO of Take-Two Interactive. Find out more about the quarter and the new game and where the company's headed. Mr. Zelnick, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see you, sir. 
Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now I just think that we need to put in perspective because you have been in, in the entertainment business, not the video, but the entertainment business. Put the three the weekend in perspective versus every other entertainment franchise in history. So in three days, we sold in to consumers $725 million worth of product. The biggest opening weekend for any entertainment product in history of any type. Uh, it's pretty amazing results. Certainly okay. way better than our expectations. All right, now this is the uh, number two. How did number two, the sequel, do versus number one? Well, in eight days, we've sold in 17 million units of Red Dead Redemption 2. That's more than we sold of the first Red Dead Redemption in eight years. Oh, and by the way, the first Red Dead Redemption was a huge hit. It's incredible. Now, everyone tells me the Western is done. You, again, I refer to your movie and entertainment background. You brought back the genre. Well, there are other ex expressions of the genre, of course, and, and, and they're wonderful. But Westerns seem to find a place um, at certain times when the populace is feeling a certain way. And I think, really? yeah, tip typically in really good times, uh, often in really bad times, you can decide what kind of yeah. times these right. are. I will say that I think the sprawling universe that's offered by Take-Two, the extraordinary opportunities to explore that universe and the deep uh, and meaningful story combined with great gameplay to, to create a great experience. Well, I, again, I want to harken back to the way that you, uh, the arc of your uh, conference calls, always great primer of how to do them. You really stressed uh, net bookings and, you, and virtual currency, average revenue per user, uh, recurring money, recurring uh, leverage. That really was, it was not the, the game that you stressed. It's the model, and the model's working. Yeah, the model is continuing to change. So recurring consumer spending was up 28% year over year. And what's the gross margin on that? Uh, 98? It's, it's not quite 100, oh, come but it's on. high. And our gross margin continues to go right, up. Right. Well, that's, I mean, when I, when I try to explain to people uh, why you should buy it, I don't say it's because of the hits. I say it's because of everything else that's more from the hits. You know, TV doesn't have that, does it? Well, certain television episodes do, certain series. Obviously, if a series is on for 14 right. years, it, right. it can make a whole lot of money, and it becomes something that has a very high gross margin. Certainly something that's repeatable has a high gross margin. So in that way, it actually, there are some similarities with television. Where there are no similarities is the motion picture business, which is really one and done, even, right. even if it's really big. Now, I think a lot of the, everyone's playing it, okay? Everybody's playing it. And everyone tells me the same thing, which is wait till the online version comes out. You're going to have another big wave. I know you're not promotional. But the, an online version of a big hit can be big for a company. It can be very big. So in the case of Grand Theft Auto V, we're five years after the original release, and we just had another great quarter for Grand Theft Auto Online. Better than our expectations, up sequentially quarter over quarter, only slightly down year over year, even though we said we expected the title moderate because it's been in the market for so long. Now, the analysts focus on NBA 2K 2019 not having the exact great number. Uh, Miss Forest through Trees? It's a pretty good well, franchise. Well, net bookings are up 10%. Yeah, year I thought that was good. I didn't know. <laughs> no, that, last time I checked, that's a good result. <laughs> there, there is some uh, possibility that actual units sold will be somewhat lower this year than last. Uh, I'm not certain that that'll be the case. We're pretty certain this will be a record-breaking title no matter what. And so far, biggest-selling sports game of the year. Yeah, yeah, that should be of import. Michael Rubin, who owns the Sixers, came back from, Chicago, uh, from China. 46 million people watched a uh, preseason game there. I mean, that market there is still untapped. Well, we just launched NBA 2K Online 2 in China, and revenues are up about 85% uh, 
year over year for NBA 2K Online in China. It's the, uh, it's the biggest PC sports title in China, 40 million registered users. Now, let's talk about uh, e-gaming. I have an idea for you because I don't, I don't come. I'm all ears. I'm not going to let you give me all that. I'll get even, how about scholarships for kids to play NBA basketball? We give big scholarships at major universities for kids who play for the real game. How about you give scholarships to your company? It's a great idea. And there are so many things that we can do as this eSport develops. This year we have 21 teams playing. Last year it was 17. The draft is going on right, right. now. And these are exactly the kind of things that we need to think about. You know, we do Got pay, young. You know, we pay the players salaries. They, they work yeah. for us full time. There's much more to be done as the sport develops. All right, now, I read the variety piece. I, read the, I wanted to ask you. I said that because please don't give me the same quote you gave variety. Um, <laughs> CBS, your chairman, uh, you're doing a lot of things. You also have a book out. There's a lot going on in your life. Now, I know what your baby and your heart and soul is, is take two, but CBS could get messy, Strauss. I mean, everybody could be under fire who was from the old regime. And you have to captain it because you're the only guy is, well, there's some people, but you weren't involved. So the government's going to look to you. The U.S. attorneys might even look to you for help. A lot of work. Um, I, as you know, I, I like to work, and I am trying to be helpful, right. uh, and I think there's an opportunity to be helpful. I am the interim non-exec right. chair. So that's, that's different, of course, than a, than a full-time right. executive position. Yeah, you're a member of the board, basically. Yeah. Okay, and then lastly, ostrich? Ostrich. ostrich. Right, well, you, you lost me here. Ostrich, oh, ostrich meat, ostrich meat yeah. is a, the rising star of the grill. Now, well, I am you, looking about how to be ageless. Have you tasted it yet? Have you, did you, read, it? you wrote the book, yeah, right? Yeah, ostrich. I, I, I mean, I, I, am I the only one who's read the book? It was a little out of context. <laughs> um, so it, tastes, it actually tastes, depending on how it's prepared, like unsurprisingly, chicken or meat. It's very low fat and very high protein. I have to admit, I've, though, I prefer bison. Okay, because ostrich, there's only one place in Brooklyn you can get yeah, it. No, so and, I immediately said to But I do prefer Lisa. bison, which tastes, if it's prepared right, yeah. tastes a lot like tenderloin. Incredibly low fat, very high protein. Oh, okay. High protein. You got a whole chapter about that. And then really, you gave up alcohol. Yes. Which is a lot of people's fave, but you said it's just, just not good. Lots right. of calories, metabolizes to sugar. Some people like it. I haven't entirely given up sugar, Jim. Okay. And then for, uh, the Battle Royale for, Fortnite thing still going on. What do we got? Uh, it is still going right. on. There's but it some, doesn't, people don't talk about yeah, it. There's like some anecdotal evidence that it may be moderating, but it's right. a huge title. Well, because I also think that I saw Activision Blizzard. I don't want to leave it on Activision Blizzard because their number wasn't nearly as good as yours. I'll leave it on what I like, which is the, sorry, I know I'm supposed to, I'm going <laughs> overtime here, but I, I did love the book. I want to leave it on the Becoming Ageless Plan, and I'm not kidding. And a lot of it is mind, a lot of it is mind over matter, but a lot of it is just very simple, and it's a really easy thing to do. There's no stress to it, and I like the book. That's Strauss Selnick, Chairman and CEO of Take-Two Interactive. Sorry I like the stock even more than the book. <laughs> Great to see you, Strauss. Thanks, Jim. Stay with Kramer. Price of oil plummeting. Is it at last safe to circle back to the cruise lines now that the fuel costs are coming way down? This group has been a total house of pain lately as investors worry about overcapacity in the Caribbean and exposure to China, not just fuel. But maybe Wall Street is just being too darn pessimistic. Consider Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, NCLH, which reported yet another fantastic quarter this very morning. Company delivered a six cent earnings beat off a 221 basis with higher than expected sales up 12.5% year over year. Even better, Norwegian saw strong organic pricing growth across all of its core markets. So those worries about too much capacity may be misplaced. Passengers carried up 11% 
4%. Booking's great. Net yield, which measures how much a cruise company can make off its passengers, up 4%. In short, the company's firing on all cylinders, which is why on a very tough day for a lot of stocks, the stock rallied 2.6%. So now that oil's coming down, now that the bookies are up, could this thing have more upside? Let's take a close look at Frank Del Rio. He's the president and CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings. Learn more about the quarter and where the company's headed. Mr. Del Rio, welcome back to Man Money. Jim, how are you today? Good to be with you. Well, I got to tell you, Frank, I'm good because one of the things that happened is that you took me on bliss on that beautiful ship, and that actually was meaningful for your quarter, wasn't it? It was. Look, uh, the the industry continues to do fantastic. Our company, uh, in particular, is uh, outperforming, hitting on all four cylinders, on all cylinders, as you mentioned a moment ago. And the future even looks brighter. We, we said that our bookings are ahead both in load and in price for 2019 uh, and even 2020 at this early stage. So all those uh, doubters about overcapacity and uh, the late business cycle, uh, they just don't understand the cruise industry. We're resilient. Uh, we, we perform uh, terrific in both good times and bad times. And I think sooner or later, the fundamentals of performance uh, will, uh, will overcome all the pessimism and all the uh, wrong assumptions that are being made out there. I'm glad you bring that up because I, I hear this talk about late cycle. I've been in the business for 40 years. It's so stupid. It's nothing to do with late cycle. There's secular growers and their companies that do poorly when the economy turns down. I don't know what people need yeah. to see in terms of secular growth from your company, but the numbers that you said that you put out today indicated accelerating growth. How is that possible? Things are turning down that you could have accelerating growth. I, I agree with you. Um, look, I, I, I simply don't believe that uh, the investor community at large understand the fundamentals of the cruise industry. Um, our ships go full every single time. The question is, at what price? And we've shown year after year organic growth in that three plus percent uh, level, four percent for us this year, uh, that uh, defies uh, what the uh, naysayers have to say. And then onboard revenue is uh, off, uh, you know, through the roof, uh, Jim. So we we have two data points. Right. We've got a data point based on what customers who might have booked six, eight months ago and are cruising today are saying about their uh, economy and their confidence. And that's onboard revenue. And onboard revenue is at the highest levels ever. Oh, and there's a second data point. Well, you, also, you should mention free then, air. You should mention free air, how brilliant yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's a second uh, data point of people who are booking a cruise today that they're going to take six, eight, more than a year down the road. And so it's, uh, it's really uh, great to see that, uh, uh, you know, our past guest, the travel agency community is behind the travel business, behind the cruise industry in particular. And that's why we do a whole lot better than the other sectors of the broader hospitality space, whether it be hotels, gaming, the airlines. Uh, there's just no stopping the cruise industry. All right, well, so compare it to 2014 in terms of where you are now versus then, because that's a good compare, right? 2014 was decent economy. Well, where, where can I start? We're, uh, we've delivered from, um, you know, five plus to the low threes. Uh, the balance sheet is in great shape. We have a more diversified portfolio. Back in 2014, Norwegian was a one-brand company. Today, uh, it has three brands, the leading brands in the luxury space, the leading brand in the upper premium space, and, of course, Norwegian Cruise Line. We've added five ships since 2014. Uh, we'll turn the year 
65% booked. Can you imagine a company that has the kind of visibility that we will have? We will have sold 65% of the following year's inventory by year end this year. In 2014, that number was around 30%. So uh, there's just no comparison how far this company has come uh, in the last three or four years. And, and there's even more good news uh, uh, you know, to come in 2019 and 2020. So we're extremely excited about uh, the, the next few years ahead. All right, last question. Remember, Let's just eight ships, eight. Eight ships, eight ships on order. So we're going to keep growing organically. I want to put to rest this idea of too much capacity. Just tell us what happened with Alaska. A lot of capacity and how it was priced. Yeah, so we, um, we grew pricing over 25% in 2018 on the heels of 15% capacity growth. That just goes against the grain of what all the, all the pundits expect to happen. And we think we're going to be able to do a... Um, uh, a very well, uh, a very good uh, 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 Alaska program this coming year. When we add Norwegian Joy, they're re redeploying from China. We'll add 30% capacity, but we'll have the best hardware without question in the uh, China in the, in the Alaska market. And so we're uh, we're very uh, confident that we can uh, again outperform. Uh, and the important summer Alaska season. I totally agree with you. You're really the only travel group that is, I think, truly secular in growth and just great numbers. I want to thank, yeah. I want to th I want to thank Frank Del Rio. He's president and CEO of Norwegian Cruise Lines. Remember, we had the pleasure of being on Bliss. What a great situation. We have money's back after the break. It is time. time for the light round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dang, time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Ernest in Arkansas. Ernest! Hello, Mr. Kramer from the great state of Arkansas. Truly. I've been looking at a uh, company called ANET, Arista Networks. I was wondering what you thought about it. I think that they are very good. And Jay Shriula, whom I would love to have back on the show, is a brilliant manager. But I also like what Chuck Robbins is doing at Cisco. And Cisco's got less volatility. I need to go to Greg in Minnesota. Greg. Hey, Greg Kramer. Yo. Glad I get a, got a hold of you finally. Did you get my uh, spiff on uh, Foot Locker? And well, uh, what do you think about the, the tariffs on shoes? Is, well, is I mean, the tariffs are kind of, I mean, a little bit overblown in this one. I've got to tell you, I think Foot Locker's okay, but it would have been a lot better in the 30s. So if we think it's moved a little too much. Let's go to Ron in New York. Ron. Mr. Kramer, how you doing? Thanks I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing all right. Listen, I want to get your opinion on SalesPoint technology. What do you think of that? It's very good digital identities. The problem is there are like five companies that are in the same ilk, and they're all like too high, and people can come in and sell between here and your end. I need to go to Randall, Minnesota. Randall. Hey, a warm booyah from the frozen socialist state of Minnesota, Kramer. I like that. I like that the Super Bowl was. Loved it. What's up? We're going to get their CCK. Am I holding? Am I buying more? Where am I going? CCK, it's the old Crown Cork and Seals. Uh, Crown Holdings, I think it's a very inexpensive stock. The closures, it does a great job. I say, I mean, uh, the, the tariffs are probably hurting. I, I don't know. I like the company. What can I say? Let's go to Ann in Indiana. Ann. Jen, thanks for taking my call. Of course. I think IDEX guided down uh, on their future estimates. So is it a buy, sell, or hold? Which one? IDEX, the pet supply company. I, I thought that they did they did a good number. I, I 
Yeah, I, I thought the number was good. I'm, I'm not backing away one bit from IDEX or the humanization of pets. As a matter of fact, I'll throw in another one that I really like just in terms of the uh, diagnosis. I like Thermo Fisher. I, I haven't been talking about it enough. I need to go to Mike in Connecticut. Mike, Mike, Mike. Hey, Dr. Kramer. This is Dr. Mike in Connecticut. How are you doing? I'm a doctor sitting around talking. What's happening? Hey, not much, not much. I'd like to talk to you, though. I have a stock that I had sold recently, and uh, based on the Fibonacci queen, it looks like one of her charts, and that's Emerson Electric. Oh, man. What far, do you think? Yeah, far is really good. But Chapel Trust owns it. You can follow Join the club, AxelorsBus.com. And I got to do a big meeting next week, and I got to tell you, I'm going to talk positive about Emerson. Why? Because that quarter was good, and it's a great American industrial. Uh, let's go to Gloria in California. G-L-O-R-I-A, Gloria. Hello, booyah, hooyah. Well, I like that. What's up? Uh, I'm calling you about Mellanox. It's a technology stock. Yeah, I know it. And people think it's going to get taken over, but I can't recommend stocks on a takeover basis if I don't like them on the fundamentals. Uh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. We've allowed so many different ETFs to be created that there are now whole groups of stocks that have become nothing but chits in a bizarre game of stock market roulette. And if you don't know whether your stock is stuck in some important ETF basket that's being used actively by moron money managers flitting all over the place, then you may have no idea why that stock is hopping around like a Mexican jumping bee, because it has nothing to do with the underlying company or its earnings or anything else. We know, for instance, the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, now Alphabet, are in 10 different ETFs. So on any given day, their movements tend to be driven by the action in the ETFs and not the other way around. The tail is wagging the dog. Amazon shouldn't have been up $112 yesterday, a nearly 7% move, even though nothing major happened at the company aside from the headquarters question. That's a big run, but it was all about money managers saying stupid things like, ooh, risk on, or tech's working. So they reached for whatever FANG ETF they can find. That's the whole reason Amazon stock caught fire yesterday. And FANG's not even the worst of it. There are some totally abusive, moronic, horrible ETFs that make a mockery of the whole business that we're in. I'm talking about the ETFs that try to mimic the actions of portfolio managers themselves. Traders use these derivative instruments to gamble on someone else who's actively betting at the roulette table. These voyeuristic ETFs are completely hidden, yet they often control the action in a host of different stocks. Take two of my favorite companies, Visa and MasterCard. They're both terrific at what they do with sensational CEOs and global businesses that are based on the simple idea that uh, that the world is going from paper to plastic. I interviewed Al Kelly from the CEO of Visa not that long ago, and I was very impressed with what he's doing to expand the business worldwide. Also buying back, by the way, 1.4 billion shares over the last seven years, shrinking the share count by more than 35%. He's beaten the numbers consistently. Over at MasterCard, Adrian Bonga, well, he's done just as well, reporting one great quarter after another. Now, Visa and MasterCard are worth $322 billion and $215 billion, respectively. You might think the fundamentals would matter to the day-to-day action of these gigantic companies, but both stocks have had the misfortune of being put into the MSCI USA Momentum Index. This is an index that groups together stocks with momentum so that you can wager on momentum managers who are betting on momentum stocks. Visa represents 5% of the index, the third largest position. MasterCard is number, uh, uh, it's also in the top, well, top five, isn't it? 4.7%. Can you imagine this? They've turned these two stocks into momentum stocks. 
The language in the description of this stupid basket says it all. It is designed to reflect the performance of an equity momentum strategy by emphasizing stocks with high price momentum while maintaining reasonably high trading liquidity, investment capacity, and moderate index turnover. In other words, if you want to bet against or with momentum-oriented managers, you just buy this one or slap on a short, which causes Visa and MasterCard stock and many others to get hit when you short them. At any given moment, the ETF is far more powerful than the stocks themselves. Do I, I don't even think the CEOs know that. I make a living of this stuff, and I know it myself. Of course, the problem is that this basket and others like it were all set up in a perfect world where there was ample liquidity, and this tail couldn't wag the dog. But that's not the world we live in anymore. The ETF is strangling the dog. Stocks with several hundred billion dollars of market cap can't withstand the impact of these ETFs. The MSCI USA Momentum Index has turned these two stocks into playthings, totally divorced from their fundamentals in any given day. When you see them vault or get crushed at the opening, it's not about the companies, people. It's about this ridiculous ETF. One day, these indices are going to be totally overwhelmed. Or totally, they're going to totally overwhelm the direction of the entire market. The ETF is going to take control. What can save us? Simple. I've got an idea. Any company can call me and talk about it. One of the companies in these indices needs to wise up to the fact that these baskets are toxic to their shareholders, who, by the way, own the company, and actually bring a case against the ETF peddlers to get out of the baskets. If not, you're going to see more stocks being destroyed based on nothing more than they're in the wrong basket itself. At the end of the day, these ETFs can be very useful for day traders, but normal investors pay a terrible price because it makes the whole business of stock picking much more difficult and often futile. Yes, far more futile than it should be. Stick with me. All right, listen up. I want everyone to tune in tomorrow to my great friend Scott Wapner's show, The Halftime Report at noon. They are doing a powerful show for Veterans Day, and I don't want you to miss it. Now, we had some good ones tonight. Disney, uh, my Chapel Trust owns it. I was very glad they did not try to guide down numbers for 2019 because of spending. That's how strong business may be. And Dropbox, Drew Houston told a really good story when we were at Salesforce, and then the stock went down 7 bucks. Well, you know what? That was wrong, and tonight is right. Then Yelp, we got to look into this one. I don't know how it got so weak so fast, but it was quite chilling. And then do not sell take two off of Activision Blizzard. Buy it! Like I said, there's always the bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.